0: We're going to depart because the last couple of weeks have been kind of rough. On May 14th, a man walked into a grocery store in Buffalo, New York, killed 10 people and injured three. On May 15th, a man walked into a church in Laguna Woods, California and killed one person and injured five more. On May 23rd, a report about sexual abuse in the Southern Baptist Convention was released, revealing not only widespread abuse, but covering up of the abuse that had gone on for over 20 years. Then on May 24th, a man walked into an elementary school in Uvalde, Texas, and killed 21 people, including 19 children, and injured 17 more. And we all wonder, how do we respond to stories like this? I mean, how do you respond when an 18-year-old, basically a kid himself, walks into a grocery store and guns 10 people down? How do you Respond when people in positions of leadership and authority within the church of Jesus Christ sexually assault people under their care. And those in leadership and authority exert significant time, resources, and pressure to cover it up and keep it covered for years and years and years. How do you respond when another 18-year-old, again, basically a kid himself, Walks into an elementary school and, in a matter of moments, brutally murders over 20 people, with 19 being young children. How do you respond to these sorts of real life stories? Most of us, we go through a myriad of emotions fear, anger, sadness, confusion as the stories unfold. Of course, one of the most common responses is we turn to God, prayers offered for the families of the victims. Candlelight vigils where people gather to pray and to mourn. But if history is any sort of indicator, the outward appearance of turning to God typically leads to struggles and questions about God. At one moment, we find ourselves turning to God for comfort and strength, praying for his help. And in the next moment, we find ourselves wondering, where was God? When evil like this strikes our world. Why would he allow such evil to occur? In The face of this kind of evil, people naturally begin to ask what one pastor referred to as historical and personal questions. He used the word historical because these questions have been asked for centuries. Our generation, we aren't the first ones to wonder them because of what we see in the world. And they're personal because they strike deep the core of our very being, our surrender and service to God. They also strike at the core of who God is. We wonder if God can prevent horrible things like this from happening. And if he can, why doesn't he? If God was able to stop the massacres and the molestations and the covers up the cover ups, why didn't he? We consider these on a larger scale. Why would God allow the many atrocities of history to occur? But we wonder about it also on a smaller scale. Why would God allow us to suffer the things we've suffered and gone through in our lives? These questions go far back in history. As early as there's been a people who've believed in a God, people have wondered about these questions. And There's no way I'm going to give a complete answer to them today. Time would not permit. Truly no answer is fully sufficient no matter what. But I do want to address them in some way today because of what's going on in our culture and what's been... Happening recently. When circumstances like these occur, even the most devoted disciple of Jesus can struggle to find answers to the hard questions they have. They can struggle to find answers to the questions other people bring to them. If you believe in God, tell me why your God would allow these things. Unfortunately, what often happens is as we struggle to find and to give answers, we we go to what would be emotional responses, or we go to superstitious responses. We go to unbiblical responses. I don't know what the Bible says, but this is just how I feel. And these wrong answers can subtly but definitely weaken the foundation of God's Word in our lives. A foundation we desperately need to maintain as we seek to live in a broken and so often evil world. So today what I'm going to do is give us four biblical truths to help us stand amid evil we so often see engulfing our world doubtful I'm going to tell you anything you don't already know. I rarely have anything new to say. Instead, I want to encourage you by reinforcing four basic but very important biblical truths. Number one, evil is dreadfully real. This is a basic but often forgotten point. There's so much violence on TV. Sin has been so minimized in our culture, we often forget absolute evil exists. Not only does Absolute evil exists. There exists a being who is nothing but absolute evil. Satan or the devil is a real being. He's not the dark side of the force. He's not the wrong represented within each of us. He is not the symbol of evil in the world. He is not a myth to scare children into being good. He is a truly real being. He is absolutely, totally evil all the time. Thinking about the devil or Satan isn't probably something we give much thought about, or maybe we don't want to, but it is a truth we need to know. We need to know it, and we have to keep it in the proper perspective, because as C.S. Lewis said, there are two equal and opposite errors to which humans can fall into about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence, and the other is to believe in them and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. So there's a delicate balance we have to maintain. God's Word is clear. Satan is real. Evil is dreadfully real. God's Word gives Satan a variety of different titles, each one being somewhat descriptive of what he does. Here's just a portion of what we're told. Satan is the tempter. At our very first encounter with Satan in the Garden of Eden, he tempts Adam and Eve to sin. His temptation of Adam and Eve to sin is pretty basic that he still uses in our day Now, has God said? He calls God's word into question. Right then, has God said? Then he tells them he contradicts God's word. You'll you'll not surely die. And then he tells them God is keeping them from something good. He casts doubt on God's character. In the end, I, I think all temptations fall into those three categories. Are you sure that's really what the Bible said? Are you sure that's really what God means? I don't think that's really what the Bible says. I don't really think that's what God means. Come on, think how much better your life would be if you just lived like this. Think how much pleasure you're missing out on. God is actually keeping you from something good. Satan used those that worked on Adam and Eve and he used those same sort of temptations when he tempted Jesus. Mark, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record Satan tempting Jesus. From the very beginning... To the closing pages of God's Word, Satan is presented as an enemy of God and subsequently an enemy of God's people. He absolutely despises anyone made in the image of God, anyone who is devoted to Jesus. He tempted Adam and Eve to sin, he tried to tempt Jesus to sin, and he's working, trying to tempt all of us to sin. Satan is a liar and the father of lies. This one's pretty self-explanatory. God's Word is truth. What contradicts God's Word is not truth. Satan is the liar that inspires people to think that going into shopping centres and shooting people is the way to go. He's the one that inspires people to think it's better to cover up to cover up the evil than it is to expose it and let the chips fall where they may. He is the one who convinces people God's not real or God doesn't care or God has changed. Satan is a thief who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Where you see things like innocence and goodness and life being stolen, you know Satan is at work. Where you see things like innocence and life and purity being killed, you know Satan is at work. Where you see families being destroyed, things being torn down, you know Satan is at work. Satan is the God of this world. It's the God of this world. Satan works to keep people blinded to the Gospels. So they'll not see their need for Jesus. He's also the commander of the powers the unseen world who works in the hearts of unbelievers and he leads these people along the course of life he wants them to follow it's pretty important when we don't have time to dig deep into it people who don't believe in god are influenced by the devil is essentially what the bible teaches they don't all follow the same path but they do follow a path he leads for them and it's the path he knows will bring about the most destruction in their life and keep them blinded to their need for Christ and lead, their, lead them ultimately to being damned in eternity. Satan is a roaring lion seeking someone to, vow, to devour. Satan is like a spiritual stalker waiting at just the right time to pounce on anyone in a moment of weakness. He knows when he's, he's been at this with humans for a long time. He can't read our minds. He can't read our thoughts. He can't force us to do anything that he has the best knowledge of humans that any person could have because he's been around since our beginning and he has watched us from the the very get-go. He knows how to work, how to tempt, what he can best do to devour someone waiting at just the right moment. And then Satan has many allies. When Satan rebelled against God, he was initially an angel of the Lord. When he rebelled against God, he convinced one-third of the angels to join with him. They were cast out of heaven and just as Satan is a roaring lion roaming the earth seeking someone to devour, so his demons roam the earth doing his will. We really don't know how many a third of the angels is. The closest we can come to is sort of an estimation. In, in Matthew 26:53, Jesus was being arrested. And he said he could, if he wanted to, call more than 12 legions of angels to come and help him. Now if an angel legion is like a a Roman legion, then the size of a Roman legion varied from 4,200 to about 5,200. This means the number of angels Jesus could have summoned could have been 50,400 to 62,400. And that's not using the more than, that's just 12. So how many allies does Satan have? How many demons are roaming the earth? Well, a lot. There's no telling how many there are at work in the world now. They are devoted to His will, they are devoted to doing His plans, and they are always trying to push His agenda. When it comes to Satan and when it comes to demons, there is a tension we live with from God's Word. On the one hand, he is defeated. was defeated by Jesus on the cross. And he will ultimately be finally and fully defeated when he is cast in the lake of fire himself. On the other hand, he is still on the earth. He is still deceiving. He is still destroying. He is still killing. He is still doing all the things He has always done. He is a powerful and a vicious enemy of everyone made in the image of God. He's the enemy of God. He wants to pervert anything that is right and true and good. Anything God has ordained, He seeks to corrupt. As we seek the events in the last couple of weeks, it's clear He's having some victories. We see lives taken families gutted, division rising, church of Jesus Christ shamed, people sinking into despair. As disciples of Jesus, we must recognize the reality of evil being dreadfully real. We must not be afraid to call things that are evil, evil. This will not be widely accepted position. Many in our day deny the existence of absolute evil. Noted atheist Richard Dawkins once said, In a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt and other people are going to get lucky. And you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at the bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, and no other good. Nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. DNA neither knows nor cares. DNA just is, and we dance to its music. Many believe those ideas. They believe that there is no real true good, no true evil. But I wonder if Dawkins and those who embrace his mindset would follow this idea to its logical conclusion and they would say, neither the gunmen nor the molesters nor those who cruelly covered for the molesters were evil or good, they just were. They were just dancing to their DNA. But here's the reality. Even if that is what they would say, that is not what we should say. As disciples of Jesus, we must call things what they are. We must know evil is dreadfully real and we must say it clearly. We must say it loudly. Things that are evil are evil. What happened in New York was evil. What happened in California was evil. What happened in Texas was evil. Every instance of sex abuse, every time they covered it up, it was evil. There were no redeeming qualities in any of those actions. It was just pure evil. So evil is real. It's dreadfully real. And God, though, is unquestionably sovereign. If evil is dreadfully real, what about God? Does God have authority over evil? Are God and the devil equal but opposite sides who are fighting for control over the world? God's word teaches God is unquestionably sovereign. Consider some of what we're told. God is sovereign over nations and rulers. God told Pharaoh. Pharaoh. For I have now put you out of my hand and struck you and your people, the plague you would have been eliminated from the earth. But indeed, for this reason, I've allowed you to remain in order to show my power, in order to proclaim my name throughout the earth. First, God says if he wanted to, he could have destroyed Egypt just with a will, just by willing it to happen. He could have done it and no one or nothing could have stopped him. Secondly, He said everything he was doing in Egypt was being done to prove to the watching world he rules the people, the nations, and the governments of the world. God had raised Pharaoh up for that purpose. God had allowed Pharaoh to remain on the throne for that purpose. And God would keep him there until he was through with his purpose. Pharaoh existed in that moment to show the world there was a God. And it wasn't Ra, it wasn't Hecate, it wasn't the sun, it wasn't Pharaoh. It was Yahweh, the one and only sovereign ruler God over the entire world. God is the ruler. He is sovereign over nations and rulers. We find this not just in Exodus, but all throughout God's word. God is not just sovereign over nations and rulers, though God is sovereign over not life and death. See now, see that see now that I am he and there is no God beside me. It is I who put to death and it is I who give life. I have wounded, it's I who heal, there's no one can save from my hand. Our lives are ultimately in God's hands. We can eat all the gluten-free, fat-free, flavor-free food we want to in order to stay healthy, but if God determines our time is up, our time is up. Satan does not have ultimate authority to take a life. He would like to. He would like us to think he did, but he doesn't. Our lives the lives of every other person on the planet are in God's hand because He is sovereign. He alone is sovereign over life and death. God is also sovereign over Satan and demonic spirits. And this is super important for us to understand because while Satan may roam the earth seeking someone to devour, he does not have absolute freedom. He is subject to God's rule and to God's limitations. We see this in the story of Job. Where Job accuses Satan before God, saying, of course, Job worships you. You do all these good things for him. Take away your hand of blessing. Let me attack his family. He'll curse you just like everybody else does. So God allows him to take his family, to take his stuff. But he says on his person, you can't touch him at all. So he kills Job's family. He kills Job's stuff. Still, Job praises the Lord. Satan comes back to accuse Job yet again. He says, okay, people give everything for their stuff. But you let me touch him. He'll curse you like everybody else does. To which God says, okay, you can attack his person, but you can't kill him. So Satan attacks Job and covers him with boils from the top of his head to the soles of his feet. And still, Job does not curse God. God was sovereign in that moment. He put the... Limits to what Satan could and could not do. We see this in the New Testament. Particularly in the Gospels. As we go through the Gospel of Mark. We are going to continually see demons. And encounters with Jesus. And in every instance. Particularly when we get to Mark 5. And we see the man possessed with legions of demons. They run to Jesus. They bow before Jesus. And the demons plead for mercy from Jesus. They don't fight with Jesus. They don't struggle. There is no... Big fight for them to, for Jesus to cast the demons out. Jesus just says leave. And they do. The demons have to obey Jesus because Jesus is sovereign over Satan and over demons. God is sovereign. Humans are not sovereign. Good guys are not sovereign. Bad guys are not sovereign. Satan is not sovereign. God Is sovereign, but God is also incomparably good. The goodness of God is what makes his sovereignty a source of comfort for the people of God. Many nations on the earth have kings who are sovereign over them and have all manner of authority, but their sovereignty makes the people afraid. Their sovereignty makes the people fear because the kings themselves are not good. They themselves are evil. They themselves are capricious in the way they deal with others. God is not so. Every good thing and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is neither variation nor shadow of turning. A part of what this means is any good thing someone has in their life is a gift from God. Any good thing anyone has ever had in their life is a gift from God. God is the source of Of all good things on the earth. This means God is good to believers and unbelievers alike. God isn't just good to certain people. In various ways, God shows his goodness to all people on the planet. In the book of Acts, we're told even though the nations went their own way, God never let them without a witness of his existence and without his goodness. A part of this evidence was the rain and the harvest and the proper seasons as well as joy in their lives. Jesus said God makes the rain and the sun to shine on the evil and on the good. He makes the rain on the just and on the unjust side. The idea of God being good to all people and any good thing anyone has is from God speaks to what's often been called common grace. There are many ways in which common grace is demonstrated in our world but for our context Common grace is seen any time someone has or experiences anything good. Anything good in our fallen, sin-cursed, evil-dominated world comes from God and is an example of His common grace that is bestowed upon all people. Every action of God flows out of and demonstrates His goodness. And while we may not understand everything God does or everything God allows in our world, we can be assured that since He is Good. Everything he does is good. This allows us to take comfort in his power because he will never abuse his power. This allows us to trust his guidance because he will never lead us in the wrong direction. This allows us to submit to his discipline because we know it's always best. But still, how can God be unquestionably sovereign and incomparably good? and There is so much evil in the world. Or to put it in the context of our headlines. How can God be unquestionably sovereign and comparably good when mass shootings, sexual abuse, and cover-ups abound? Many answers to this question, many directions we should go. The one I want to focus on today is what God's Word teaches us about His goodness and how it relates to sin. First, God prevents sin. Abraham once went into Egypt when he wasn't supposed to. Because his wife was beautiful, he told her to tell people she was his sister. When they went into a region, the ruler of the area was attracted to her and took her to be his wife. He didn't know. He had no idea. But in a dream, God spoke to him. He said, I know that in the integrity of your heart you have done this. And I have kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. So God protected him. He kept the man from sinning. Somehow the man took her to make her his wife. But for one reason or another, he was not able to consummate that relationship. And we don't know what God did in Pharaoh, or not Pharaoh, but in that king to keep it from happening. But we do know that it was God preventing him from sinning. In another instance, we're told that if the Lord of armies had not left a few survivors, we would be like Sodom and we'd be like Gomorrah. Babylon had attacked Israel and had conquered it. Why had they not killed everyone and completely destroyed Israel? Well, it's because God prevented them from doing that. But again, we have questions. If God prevents sin, how do mass shootings and sex abuses and cover-ups happen? While God does prevent sin, He has also given humans free will. Humans often use their free will contrary to God's design. Turn to Psalm 81. Page 451 in the Pew Bible. Psalm 81 and verse 8. Hear my people and I will admonish you. Israel, if you would listen to me, there shall be no strange God among you, nor shall you worship a foreign God. I, the Lord, am your God, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide, and I will fill it. There's God's will and God's want for the people. He wanted them to listen to Him. He wanted them to be devoted to Him and Him alone. And then, in response, God would bless them. He had proven His care for them by bringing them out of Egypt, and He would give them basically every good thing, They could ever want. Almost He would give them their heart's desire. But but notice what happens. But my people did not listen to my voice. And Israel did not obey me. So there was God's will. No foreign gods among them. Be devoted to Him. And He would bless them. But the people didn't want that. The people would not listen. They would not hearken. So God gave them over to the stubbornness of their hearts. To walk according to their own plan. So God was working, calling them, restraining them. In many ways, we, we don't know for sure in the what ways He was doing it, but He was keeping them from doing all of the evil they wanted to do, even though they were still doing some evil. And He was holding them back, but when they would not listen, when they would not turn, when they would not give themselves to Him, He took His hand of restraint away and He allowed them to go to the stubbornness of their hearts, to walk according to their own plans simple illustration of this would be like if you tell your kid they won't like liver and onions and you keep telling them over and over again it, it tastes like licking the floor you're not going to like it no matter what you do and they keep on and they keep on and so you finally okay you've been restraining them you've been protecting them and then you give them what they want and it turns out it's not what they anticipated it's not as good as what they thought it would be it is bad that's a simple way to understand the picture of what's being painted here. Humans, unregenerate humans particularly, are bent toward sin and bent toward evil. And God is always at work restraining, holding them back, keeping them from being as evil as they possibly could. But then there comes a point where God allows an individual or a culture... To see what it's like when He doesn't restrain them. To see what it's like when He's not holding them back. To give them their heart's desire, which is to be stubborn and to walk over, to walk in their own plans. This isn't saying God gives up on humans. Instead, it talks about God ceasing to restrain humans. And He allows them to go headlong into their depravity. As humanity continues to resist and reject God... God gives them more and more opportunity to experience what they really want. Life without Him. And life without His restraint. Life without His common grace. Life without His working to pull them back. And the evil we see in the world are a part of God removing His hand of restraint. Death and sorrow are the result of man's sin. God made a world that was very good, but humans introduced death to the world through resisting and rejecting God's will. The evil we've witnessed in the last few weeks is more evidence. We live in a fallen, sin-cursed world. Humans are, sin- are sinful and desperately in need of a Savior. The world would actually be far more sinful, far more evil than it is if God did not restrain human depravity. God prevents sin. But sometimes God allows people to experience what they want in life without Him. God's goodness is seen as he restrains much of the evil impulses coming in the evil heart of humanity. Another way we see God's goodness relating to sin is God accomplishes his will despite sin. And we know that all things that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Now, understand this is not saying Everything that comes into our life is good. Many things we experience are certainly not good. The shootings were not good. Sexual abuses were not good. The cover-ups were not good. Those were evil actions perpetrated by evil people. But God is good. And God is bigger than our circumstances. He can take everything, even evil actions by evil people and bring good out of it. Now, right now we may not be able to see how the good is going to come out of it because I confess I struggle. I, I read, I won't get into that. Many of these things have broken my heart and I don't know how God can bring good out of it. But I know what His Word says and I trust that in time It will. And I can trust it because, one, God is good, but also God is sovereign. And also, the context of this verse is in the context of suffering. This isn't a context saying that God causes all good things to work for our good and His glory. This is a promise God will work all things, the good, the bad, and the indifferent, for our good and His glory. So the goodness of God is seen when He brings good out of evil actions by evil people. And then a final way God's goodness is seen relating to sin is God judges sin. Turn to Psalm 73, page 446. We're not going to do the whole psalm, just a few things I want us to see. Verse 1. Certainly, God is good to Israel. To those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps almost slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant. I saw the prosperity of the wicked. There are no pains in their deaths, their belly is fat. They're not in trouble like other people. They're tormented, nor are they tormented with the rest of mankind arrogance is their necklace garment of violence covers them their eyes bulge from fatness the imagination of their hearts overflow they mock and wickedly speak of oppression they speak from on high they have set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue parades throughout the earth what he's talking about is he he doesn't understand he looks at the wicked and they're prospering the good suffering and even when the wicked die, he talks about there's no pains in their deaths like other people their lives, they don't experience everything seems to go their way despite how wicked and evil they are I think we can look at this and we can feel this way, I mean we can relate to this one of the one of the men who helped cover up and oppress the abused he's getting to speak today in one of the largest churches in America what a reward for being a wicked human being and you can look at that and you can say good grief what's the point right I mean that's what the psalmist is saying well, what's the point what's the point of trying what's the point of being good what's the point of not being like them where you just think I don't understand. So the psalmist, he's he's stumbling as he looks at the wicked in the world. And again, I think we could we could do that. And he goes on through his list of that. And you look at verse 17. And he said this went on, in, or verse 16. When I thought of this, when I started understanding this, I, it was troublesome in my sight. Until I entered the sanctuary of God, then I perceived their end. You indeed put them on slippery ground. You dropped them into ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. What kept the psalmist from slipping. From falling. Was in verse 23 in part. That God had taken him by his right hand. And was guiding him. But also. He remembered. That while the wicked may escape human justice. They do not escape God's justice. In our world. Wickedness and injustice has abounded is abounding and will abound so long as the world goes on but there is a day coming in which absolute justice will be served those who escape human justice now or seem to get off easy while leaving suffering in their wake they do not escape God's justice God's justice is more just and more severe than any human justice. And this is one of those things where we don't see it. We won't see God judge the sin of the wicked. We will see what appears to be them escape. But the goodness of God, the sovereignty of Of God. Ensures they do not escape. They will stand before a righteous judge. And there are no loopholes. And there are no fancy lawyer tricks. And there is no good old boy network to cover up what they have done. And they will stand before the judge of all the earth. And their books will be opened and their wicked deeds will be read out before them. The word of God will be read out on how they have sinned against a holy God. And they will be cast in the lake of fire for all of eternity. And I, I don't, I struggle because I don't think we're supposed to rejoice Death of the wicked for God doesn't in Ezekiel he says he doesn't. but there's a scene in heaven, a scene in revelation where God judges Babylon and the people in heaven rejoice at the judgment of God falling on the wicked culture and on the wicked people. We can wow. rejoice in the justice of God. those who who killed took their own life, taken out by law enforcement. They seemed to have gotten off easy, but they didn't. The abusers who did things beyond what the statute of limitations allows any sort of human recourse for seemed to have gotten away, but they didn't. Those who covered up and oppressed abusers didn't technically commit a crime, and so they are going to get away from human justice, but they're not going to get away from ultimate justice. There is a God who hears the cries of the oppressed. There is a God who is watching over, and there is a God who will hold them accountable. And we can rejoice in the goodness of God and that He judges sin and the wicked do not escape. And then finally, Jesus offers a marvelous hope. The reality of human depravity could cause us to despair if it wasn't for Jesus. Jesus came to earth to become the Savior of humanity. Natural human depravity ensures we have all sinned and fallen short of God's glorious standard. And since we have all sinned, we have all earned the wage of sin, which is death. The eternal wrath of God will be poured out on those who have sinned throughout all of eternity. But Jesus came to save us. The terrible wrath of God comes because of sin. This is why Jesus died on the cross. His death on the cross wasn't the death of a martyr. It wasn't the death of someone who made the wrong people angry. Jesus died for one purpose. To pay the penalty our sin deserves so we could be saved from the wages of our sin. Every sin we have committed makes us Guilty before the Lord, deserving of his punishment, which is death. Every sin. The punishment for sinning against an infinitely holy God isn't merely physical death or spiritual death. It's eternal death. Eternal death is to be cast in the lake of fire for all of eternity. Revelation calls this the second death. The horrors of hell show us the terrible wrath of God against sin. It was this wrath Jesus took in our place. He took all of God's wrath against all of our sin until he cried out, it is finished. He was taken off the cross and he was laid in the tomb. And when he said it was finished, he meant God's wrath had been fully satisfied. and The penalty for the sins of the world had been paid. When we believe on Jesus, we are saved from our sins because he took the wages our sins earned. Faith in Jesus does more, though, than simply change our eternal destination. Faith in Jesus changes us forever. When we come to Jesus, we undergo a radical transformation. While we may look the same on the outside, we're not. We're a new creation. The old things have passed away and new things have come. Disciples of Jesus have not been reformed. We have not been rehabilitated. and We have not been re-educated. Instead, we have been recreated. Jesus thought this was such a radical transformation. He called it being born again. I end with this. Not just because the gospel is central to everything. Because the reality is no laws will fix the problem of our society and our world. No political party is going to fix the problems of our society and our world. No amount of education will fix the problems of our society and our world. Ultimately the problems we have are spiritual problems. The problems of really who people are at the core of their being and humans cannot make those kind of changes. Problems are brought on by human depravity and there are no man-made fixes for human depravity. For all the things that have been done that were wrong that we've seen, they're all against the law. Punishable by time in jail. Punishable by death in some states. And yet people continued to do it Man-made solutions will always fail because man-made solutions come from flawed, sinful people. The only real way to lasting change can happen in our world is through Jesus, came to earth, die for our sins and save us the punishment of our sins and totally change our hearts. It's true for us, it's true for others. is a somber message. There is the hope that we have in Christ. We look at things that have happened. We want to make a difference. We want to make the world a better place. I propose to you the way we make the world a better place is to focus on getting people to know Jesus. You and I We can't change laws. You and I, we can't fix the corrupt systems that enable the good old boy systems and abusers. But we can help people. There's a story, I'll close with this. There's a story in the Old Testament. And there's over a couple of chapters and it's a contrast. In one chapter you have kings going to war over sheep. And then down in the valley you have a prophet ministering to people who are hurting. The prophet didn't spend his time up there on the mountaintop with the kings and the generals because he couldn't change their minds. He couldn't change what they were doing. He, he ministered to the individuals down in the valley. What we're tempted to do is... All of these problems; these are mountain. I mean, these are things they're going to debate in D.C. and in general conventions and way up high. And, and, and just average people, we can't do much about that. We can vote, but we get one vote among however many people that vote. We get one say, and if we're not careful, we take that little bit of an influence, which is just such a tiny thing, and we exert all of our time and energy and effort on making sure. People know our opinions on what should happen up on the mountaintop. Meanwhile, down here where we are, where we can legitimately make a difference in people's lives, we neglect it. Let's shift our focus. Let's just say, I I want to reach my community for Christ. The best way to make a difference in Gaiman, Oklahoma, is to lead people to Jesus. Jesus offers a marvelous hope and we can make an eternal difference in someone's life. He can set captives free. He can change people's hearts. He can do amazing things that we cannot do, that laws cannot do, that politicians cannot do. Let's not give our lives to things that make no eternally significant difference. Let's give our lives to the things that matter. The four truths are true. Whether we believe them, whether we accept them or not. Evil is dreadfully real. Not because I believe it, not because you believe it, but because evil is dreadfully real. God is unquestionably sovereign. Not because I believe it, not because you believe it, but because God is unquestionably sovereign. God is incomparably good, not because I say He is. Not because you say He is. But because God is incomparably good. And Jesus offers us a marvelous hope. Faith does not make these things true. They are true. And so we have faith in them. And our faith allows us to take comfort in these truths so we can stand amid the evil we so often see in our world. I think if I did not have a foundation of God's Word in my life, I could not survive. The evil, the hurt, the wrong is so very unbearable at times. think my heart would break and I would die in sorrow if I did not have a hope in God and a hope in Jesus let's be sure our foundation in the word of God and in the son of God is firm Let's be sure we have repented of our sins. We have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we are standing upon his word as the rock and the foundation of our lives. And when evil abounds, let's offer the hope of Christ to those who suffer. Let's not try to promote our political ideologies. Let's mourn with those who mourn, weep with those who weep, and offer the hope that is only found risen Christ. I'm just going to have a time to pray. It's a response. You can stand.